All right, ladies and gents, we are on episode 50 and finally on our grand finale of our history of reticulated pythons in captivity. So that means we have Glenn McLeland back to discuss the captive history of retics from which years, Nathan? 2000? So from 2015 to currently. Yeah, so basically post Lacey back, uh, Lacey backed, uh, Lacey Act ban. And uh, we're going to mostly be focusing on the dwarf and super dwarf craze because that's kind of what's been unfolding. Um, so super excited to have Glenn back before we go ahead and bring him on. want to remind you guys of our th- 1,000 subscriber giveaway, uh, $300 worth of VivTech products. Uh, ever since we put out that promotional code, we have gained quite a few subscribers. So let's keep that going for those of you that have been following us every step of the way. Um, share that. Go to our Instagram the Retic Lounge, go to that post, share it on your story with the link of YouTube and help us get to 1K subs by the end of our one-year anniversary that's coming up August 12th. Yeah, two weeks uh, away and approaching a lot faster than I ever thought. Um, there's a handful yeah. of you guys that watch every week that aren't subscribed, so if you wouldn't mind, just hit that subscribe notif- or that subscribe button and yeah, no, just follow along. You'll get notifications when we post. That we know you who you are. Episode. We're watching you. <laughs> We're watching you. Watching All right, you let's, watching us. Yeah. <laughs> let's go ahead and bring Glenn on and uh, let him kind of give a little mini intro to himself again, and we'll jump in. Whether you're just getting into retics or you've been breeding for years, the first place you want to visit is Stewart Design. More and more breeders keep showing up at shows on Morph Market and are all over social media. Sometimes it may feel possible to get anyone's attention. Stewart Designs helps small businesses like yours do big things through brand clarity, helping entrepreneurs to start and scale businesses that are easy to know and love. Their work can help any company or industry, but they've done a ton of work for ours. Stewart Design created the brands for US Arc, Canova, Reach Out Reptiles, Coiled, and dozens of other well-known reptile breeders. Like many of us, the owner of Stewart Design, Blake is a keeper and breeder who fell in love with retics through first working with Garrett Hartle. Although Stewart Design does a lot of corporate work, Blake has a passion for working with people in the reptile industry. Stewart Design can help if you're just getting started or you're ready to take things to the next level, you're struggling to stand out and build your presence online or at shows, you don't want to be like the other guys or get lost in the crowd, and you want to make your own way doing what you love. And also, you have big ideas and know your business is special, but you need help sharing it with the reptile community. If something here resonates with you, reach out to Blake and have a conversation. To learn more or get started, visit stewartdesignbrands.com or call them at 855-SD-LOGOS. Clear brands own markets. Stuart Design helps create them. If you are in the market for an enclosure for your reticulated python or any other one of your reptiles, Focus Cubed Habitats is your one-stop shop for not only the best-looking cages on the market, but also provide amazing features and add-ons to your cages. We partnered with Focus Cubed Habitats because they continue to innovate and change the way we house our animals unlike any other caging company out there. Their cages are designed intelligently and provide the most stylish and secure housing for your animal's comfort and well-being. 
Visit focuscubedhabitats.com for your animal's caging needs. Again, visit focuscubedhabitats.com for some amazing and stylish enclosures. We also want to thank VivTech Products for being an affiliate sponsor of the Retic Lounge. Stop by VivTech Products for the best UV spectrum lighting on the market that will enhance and improve your snake's overall well-being and health. Visit VivTechProducts.com and use the code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Again, visit VivTechProducts.com and use our affiliate code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Looking for the perfect accessories for your hatchlings or juvenile retics? Look no further than Heli Guy Serpents. Our sponsor, Chris Sexton, is coming in hot with an amazing 3D printer, creating top-notch perches and other caging accessories for your beloved pets. Enrich your retics environment with their high-quality products. Use our promo code TRL10 for a 10% discount on your purchase. Visit them today at heliguyserpents.com and start giving your pets the best. Heliguy Serpents, the premier source for 3D printed caging accessories. Again, that's www.heliguyserpents.com and use our promo code TRL10 for 10% off all of your 3D printed accessories today. Yeah, thank you guys for having me back on. Um, as Lucas said, my name is Glenn McClellan. Um, this is now part three of three. So thank you to Lucas and Nathan for suffering through these God knows how many hours of listening to me babble. So thank you to both of them. Um, for my senior thesis, for my bachelor's of science and biology, I uh, researched the dwarf and super dwarf subspecies, Maleopython reticulatus, Jampionis. And as part of that, I compiled a captive history and we're going to finish that up today. And I should say yeah. that we are filming on 4th of July. So if you hear pops in the background, it's actually gunshots, not fireworks. I live in a bad neighborhood. <laughs> I, I could say the same. <laughs> Dude, my dogs have literally been just crated all day, scared as hell because people are already going off with them. I had someone I wonder what over the snake night. thinks of that. I had someone over last night and there were fireworks going off and just with the neighborhood, they're like, oh, 4th of July. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> not ducking for cover. <laughs> Do, do you uh, think the snakes think they're thunderstorms and maybe like it enhances cycling? Maybe you think it's like lightning crashing. I think that that's more the the barometric pressure. That okay, oh, that's, a, yeah. that's a wish, right? So, okay. uh, Glenn, before we get into this, do you have a rough timeline on when you are hopefully uh, going to be releasing the book that all this information is going into? Oh, I don't know. Um, I'm hoping to release the work in some sort of publicly available format. Um, I would like to have people learn as much as uh, I know about these snakes. I have the more science background. I don't have the experience background. I want to make sure that make sure that is very clear. I have one snake. Um, both uh, you and Lucas have more of that experience-based background, so it's a good mix of the more analytic and then the more experiential. So no, yeah. I don't have a timeline yet, but um, in the works of a couple different things. So hopefully, um, I'll have news soon. That's yeah. awesome. That's something I, I really say, look forward to because I'm almost all experience based. I know Lucas does a ton of digging on the forums and 
talking to yeah, people. Yeah, but that's not I, official I just, stuff. I mess with my animals. I enjoy them. So yeah. stuff, something like this where it's all compiled in one place is really going to be huge for me. So yeah. thank you. But thank you for having um, me on. Yeah, I've, I've gotten a little sneak peek at some of the information. Glenn has kind of been uh, sharing some of the stuff, and it's going to be by far the most comprehensive, elaborate, retick uh, book out there. So, yeah, super excited about that. But, Glenn, if you don't mind, I want to jump into the rest of this presentation that you have to take us home on this yes, final sir. venture. Yes, sir. So, Nathan, whenever you are ready. Okay, so uh, part three, you guys know what we're doing by now, so... Yeah, hopefully you don't have to yell at me so much this episode. I'll try to keep on top. I have a lot of faith in you, Nathan. So, you know, do me me proud. All right. Well, let's jump in. Uh, History of Reticulated Pythons in Captivity Part 3. I think we've already covered that. So let's get going. Yes, sir. Oh, did I forget to put put in the timeline? Darn it. Okay. I think it's... it's Oh, no, it's coming. I'm smarter than I think. Um, So two points of clarification Eh. on... Okay, ow. (laughs) Two notes of clarification on the previous episode. I incorrectly stated that Bob Clark's wild-caught lavender phase albino was caught in Malaysia. It was actually caught in Burma and then taken to Malaysia because that's where Anson Wong's office was. Um, That is very... That's not well-known information. Bob Clark in the video says it's from Malaysia. Every source says it's from Malaysia. So please don't fault me too greatly. It was actually from Burma, but small note of clarification. And then a more important note of clarification was um, when I was discussing the tiger, um, I incorrectly stated that there were multiple tigers at this time. But for the tigers that we see in captivity, they all date back to Carl Herman and Monte Crison. So the Barkers who use the tigers they got from the duo to make super tigers, same can be said for the Baldagos. And then Bob Clark's tigers, one of which um, was Fluffy, all came from Carl Herman and Monte Crison. So I want to thank the two gentlemen who reached out and provided that uh, further background information on that. We are going to be doing an entire morph spotlight on tiger because it's such an interesting mutation. There is a tiger that actually predates Herman and Crisons. Uh, that one's called Oddball. And then the old man, which was Herman and Crisons, the 2014 tiger captured in Bacal, Philippines, that Carson Wolner is now working with. And then the another Sumatran tiger that was found in 2019. Um, I can't wait to get into that, especially that Philippine tiger. Oh, it's cool. Uh, It's actually going to be very, a very thinly veiled sales pitch for uh, Lucas's tiger head ocelots and then Nathan's uh, clutch that had tigers in it. So yeah, the tiger promo code is going to be like crooked tongue for 30% off. (laughs) I I don't have any crooked tongues, but I I think one or two that at the very tip of the tail, like I'm talking very tip have the tiniest key. And it's just yeah. the tigers. Tigers are fun. Yeah. So there's a lot of information, and I hope that by doing an entire episode, we can um, properly explore and honor those who worked so hard to bring that mutation into captivity. Um, yeah. We call still... them. By the way, we call we call them morph talks, not morph spotlights. That's oh, that's Garrett's on. thing. Okay, Garrett's I'm got just, the morph spotlight. I've we do morph talk. Okay. Watched so many of those videos, and <laughs> I've subconsciously thought they are yours because his are so much better. So yeah, no, sorry. Absolutely. 
I just don't want to. I don't want people to be like, "Oh, they're stealing Garrett's more spotlight." They're oh, not no, spotlights, are. okay? These are faster and prettier. We we stumble through them for a while. <laughs> yeah, we stumble through them. We provide way more info that is irrelevant that you'll never need. So come subscribe to our channel. <laughs> hey, that's what I'm here for—the bullshit back and forth. Hey, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what makes it human. Um, Lucas was just on NPR, and that has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts because um, Eric and Owen are so human. Yeah, they make mistakes, right. they admit it, and then they learn from it. And there's not a lot of other people who, in the reptile industry, share that sentiment and share it publicly. So, um, go listen to Lucas's interview with them. And I'm objectively saying this because I've listened to NPR for years, but Lucas's episode is hands down one of my favorites so yeah that was knock very, it off guys good. knock it off let's get to the history hey, well okay it is <laughs> difficult it's easier to fixate on all of the things that are bad in the captive reptile industry so when someone does something good when someone does something positive i want to make note to call it out because i can sit here and complain for two hours or i can take 30 seconds and congratulate someone on a job well done appreciate it Maybe we'll drop the link down in the description if we remember. Uh, That's yeah. <laughs> I, I have a little bit of time before this episode drops, so uh, I'll, I'll throw it down <laughs> there for every, everyone who's curious. Uh, those guys are, are great. I mean, they have one of the longest running podcasts in the reptile industry. And, you know, yeah, I think they're, they're on 13 years. Yeah. Wow. And they're not like, you know, uh, full time snake people. They're not making a career out of breeding. So, it kind of offers a similar perspective. I feel like that the retic lounge does and we there, them a lot. there was a, there was a comment that someone made on the, uh, YouTube channel episode with me that someone was like, I love TRL. It reminds me of a young NPR. And that to me was like the biggest compliment because if I could try to head in that and like in the, in a direction, NPR is what I would try to be emulating. Yeah, I, I think okay. I think you know just listening to so many different podcasts over the years, authenticity is always what has rung true to me and has kept me watching certain shows. So that's what I've always aimed for here. Yeah, and then so um, on a final note, once again, um, this is neither a condemnation or a commendation of those mentioned in this presentation. There are going to be names who uh, very recently have taken on a negative image in the reptile hobby. Uh, it's not my place to judge them. I am not the ethics or um, morality police. Once again, this is the history as I understand it. If there is a controversial figure who has given me information, I will say their name because if we don't acknowledge where these snakes came from and who brought it in, we are taking out a significant portion of their history. Which it's is, history, right? Yeah, it's one history. One thing that we forget quite a bit in the reptile industry and working with animals, and we get pretty heated pretty quick over certain situations, and mm. we're all human. You know, yeah. we're all going to do something that's not in the best light at all times. And, you know, there's good and bad with all these people that we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. That'd be like talking about uh, Christianity without mentioning the Romans. Yeah, I mean, you can pick any religion, any <laughs> culture, any government. And there's horrible things done by all of them, but right, it's the history. All right. Okay. Let's jump in. Yeah. All right. 
So as we talked about earlier, uh, we're just going into 2015 to the present. We've already covered everywhere from the 1700s up to now when the Lacey Act was put in place. So let's jump in. Yeah. So I've tried to create this chronologically. However, you run into a major issue when you're discussing um, mainland reticulated pythons after the Lacey Act ban. Um, because as both of you guys know, there is no history. They have gone to the wayside, unfortunately. And it's disappointing to see in some regard because the people who can own these big snakes, take care of them properly, um, that's a subset of the market that should be catered to. However, it's really becoming irrelevant um, because there's no longer any demand for them. So there's lots of interesting things happening, but because no one wants it anymore, it's not existing. Would you guys agree with that? Uh to a point, I would say Weston over at Wildfire is still kind of trying to preserve that aspect of it um, in terms of just large locality keeping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that there's definitely a market for it, but it's a diminishing and dead one, especially in today's day and age where a lot of people are more honed in on the ethics of keeping. Um, you're, you're, it's going to be really hard, especially with the economy the way that it is, to try to fish a extremely high value price for an animal that um, is going to get that big because not a lot of people are focusing on that. But um, you have some people doing it correctly. You have Aubrey Pruitt. You have Weston at Wildfire. Uh, I know Shane is keeping really well. There's a lot of people that are still trying to keep Maitland's alive. And to be honest, um, as much as the Superdorf industry doesn't want to admit it, we need them. Um, we, we need them to continue to do well. We need them to continue to create new morphs that they're way ahead of for Superdorf so that we have a better idea of what they're going to look like. And, um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned in that picture right there, the Bob Clark Aztec. Like there are those type of things that are starting to fire up and, and reignite this fuel for the mainland market now what's cool about aztec it's a codom so you can take it directly to incomplete dominant either way right or incomplete dom i'm just saving you from christina hill i know she she went off on me about like (laughs) what was it morph or uh gene uh gene right um one of the questions she asked in our q a on patreon was lucas what's the difference between a morph and a gene and i have her reply that i'm gonna read verbatim on the video um but anyways yeah that's my take on it yeah, and there are still interesting things happening, like the Ocelot project, which I know Lucas is involved in. Uh, we only have one legally imported pecan, which belongs to Aubrey Pruitt. Uh, her name's Connie. Beautiful, beautiful animal. And she's then, a butthead. I believe it. I mean, I think she's F one. So, and then of course we have Aztec. Dot dot dot. <laughs> the king right now. Okay, you can go to the next slide. All right. Dot, dot, dot. Okay, so I've said this previously in episodes, but I am not naive to the point that there are only seven dwarf and super dwarf localities. Um, You're wrong. Um, these are simply the ones represented from the Slayer Island chain in the U.S. captive setting. So for this episode, we are specifically going to be looking at Slayer, Tambalongan, for Saputriai. Saputriai also includes the Bontaying, uh, Sulawesi's people know those, um, up into 
about halfway up, what would that be called? The Isthmus? No, that would be Peninsula, here nor there. And then working down towards Jampianus, we have Tana Jampea, Palua Kaiwadi, Palua Madu, Honey Island, Palua Kalatoa, Palua Krumpulampo, and uh, Krumpa Kidi. So obviously there's probably tens of thousands of dwarf and super dwarfs. However, these are the ones that are in U.S. captivity right now. Yes, you, Lucas. You can talk, Lucas. Yeah, no, I, I want to be respectful to Professor. Professor, um, so are, are Sulawesis and Bantaying Sulawesis, are they considered Saputra as well? Yes. So uh, all of no, not Sulawesi, all of or, no. or just that that line that you said? Yeah, there's a. Of course, the book that I would reference is being not used to. No, it's propping up my laptop so that my okay. eye level is with the camera, so I can't is show it, you. No worries. Is it Pythons of Asia? Yeah, Pythons of Asia, and then okay, the so Okay. Oh yeah. So there. There is a there is a line, so there are Sulawesis that are part of the Saputra as well. Yes. Okay, cool. That's good to know because I, I do see pictures of uh, Constrictor Cove, Chris. Um, oh, I see yes. pictures of his uh, Bantang that he has, um, and it's got that cute little rounded, stubby, kind of like someone flicked a retic's nose and they got stuck in. Mm-hmm. Um, has that cute face as well. So, yeah, um, so that's, that's actually pretty guy. cool. Yeah, I learned I learned something new today, guys. There you go. So yeah, for anyone interested in what's propping up uh, Glenn's computer right now, and what we're referencing quite a bit in this is the Pythons. Uh, uh, wait, Pythons of the World, Volume Three of Asia and Malay Archipelago. I'm gonna order it right now. You should. Yeah, it's a 100%. it's a great book in terms of just breaking down the subspecies of reticulated python. It taught me quite a bit. And one of the authors is Mark Iulia, who wrote the 2002 paper um, where he defined Jampionis and Saputriae. For... The one that's outdated? I wouldn't call it outdated, to be honest. Isn't there one that recently surfaced after that? There was the 2016 Hanifa et al., but I Wait, wouldn't say it's outdated. Called? The okay. Hanifa et al. paper? Um Holy God. crap, that book right now on Amazon is 75 bucks. Yeah, uh, it's Lucas, just go to NARBC um, and pick it up at one of the tables. They'll be there. It's a lot cheaper. I, I want to say, oh, yeah, it's eco publishing. Like 45, 50 bucks. Gosh. Okay, I'll, I'll pay that, but 75 bucks, damn. I'm going to charge you 80 if I ever release a book to make a point. Did they, did they say what kind of retake that was on the cover? Because that kind of looks Philippine. Anyways. Maybe. I don't know. Um, Oh, and then one note I should say, even though we consider the Saputriae, the Insular Saputriae, and then Jampionis, the dwarf and super dwarfs, there were dwarfs that entered the reptile trade before them. Um, I referenced this book, the Burmese Python General Care and Maintenance of, with select notes on other species. And I didn't finish one of the sentences last time, but the author wrote, other forms include silvery ticks with very light silvery gray heads and background coloration and dwarf forms said to originate from Timor. And this book was written. That's awesome. In 1991. So there were dwarfs from Timor all the way back then that were entering the captive reptile trade. So this isn't anything new. Okay, 
Um, I'm going to actually start with a question for both of you now that we're moving into the history that you guys will know. Um, Lucas, I'm going to ask you this question with a particular spin, and Nathan, I'm going to ask you this question with a particular spin, but how do you guys understand the history of dwarf and super dwarfs in captivity? Nathan, you with a focus on the morphs. Um, the other day we were talking about pro-reptiles and how those imports um, are where your lines trace back to. Um, and then Lucas, as a locality nerd, how do you view it? Okay, cool. Um, Nathan, want to go first? Yeah, uh, you know, I haven't done a ton of digging besides just where my animals originated from in terms of, you know, who, where they are established and how they got into the States, especially with that pro reptiles line. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I could say my, my understanding of the morph side of things is actually pretty small. Um, I don't know. You can, how many other people can trace it back that far? Well, I mean, that was all with the help of Garrett. So, I mean, who it, helped through Richard Bilbo. Yeah. So yeah. there's uh, a long line of people. No, in in fact, uh, when I first got my animals, they were sold to me, uh, my two establishing animals, my annery and my purple albino that came from that pro reptiles line. Um, they were sold as 87 and a half percent super dwarf. Um, this was back before people started digging into the origins of, you know, all the importation and everything. And then there were some questions that popped up. Richard and uh, Garrett did some digging and found out that that line had been mixed with some Jampea over the years and, you know, uh, ended up that last 12.5% was actually Jampea and not uh, Super Dwarf locality. So, And that information was out there. Someone just had to look for it. So good for you. Yeah, I mean, even with our last episode, that information's always been out there. People could have dug for themselves to find out about TK. And, you know, it's just a matter of the effort you want to put into legitimizing your animals, I guess. Yeah. And you made a point to do that. So good for you. Yeah. And then Lucas, what's your understanding? So ask the question again, understanding of... What's your general understanding of the history of super dwarfs in captivity? If you had to explain it to someone who didn't know anything about it, how would you do it? Okay. Um, before I even start, I just want to give a shout out to Theron Lance, whose little baby is off to the right on that picture who produced that. So, um, but anyway, so I would tend to tell people in terms of history of Dwarf and Superdorf that they were in our country back in the 90s. Um, they started uh, importing Jampeas, and um, uh, but back then, um, locality data was not very... Uh, it wasn't available. People didn't care. And then there was, there's also the, the part of history that says that um, exporters didn't want us to know, you know, what islands that these animals were caught from, but these marketing terms came up as super dwarf and dwarfs. And that was to describe these animals that stayed smaller, were more silver in nature and had more broken up patterns. Uh, and they were imported um, at a decent rate in the nineties and early two thousands. Um, and um, people were working with them, and and they were something that were uh, fairly popular. But you know, at that point, like we talked about, the morph craze was still going on, and we were trying to import morphs and and gene stack and and find really cool combos that were happening. And so, um, they started gaining a lot more popularity around 2013, once the Lasiak ban um, kind of started to get implemented. And it was known in 2013 and 14 that we were going to stop importation where locality information in general started increasing. And a lot of people started 
importing locality animals, specifically dwarf and super dwarfs, um, as well as others. But that's when we started getting a lot of really good locality data. Um, and uh, we reached a point where they were popularized in around 2017 from Garrett Hartle, who kind of started this new wave of information uh, and educating people on, you know, these smaller retics. And uh, it, it's gone all the way to now where, you know, we, we really pride ourselves in locality information and being able to trace back animals. Um, and I think that locality is more and more starting to become uh, more appreciated. Uh, it's still not nearly as much as, you know, the morph craze. And, you know, uh, I think rightfully so, because morphs can be beautiful. Um, nothing beats a purple, classic purple or endocarmal albino. They're just like phenomenal looking animals, right? Um, yeah, and so, but I mean, when, when I open up that tub and I can show someone what a uh, what a reticulated python in the wild is supposed to look like. I, right. I don't know that I get a, a lot more satisfaction. There's a good tingle, right? There's a, there's a tingle somewhere. I'm not going like, to say yeah, where, look, but there's look a tingle somewhere. Look at how cool, these, cool and bright all these snakes are, and then I kind of <laughs> finish off with that wild type because I'm like, this is what they're supposed to look like. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if I were to kind of describe the history, that would be it in a nutshell. They were imported in. They weren't worked with very heavily. There's a few people that were working with them. Uh, Lacey Band Act started happening. People started caring about localities. And now we're in a craze because of one person who revived the retic industry and kind of got it back on its, you know, because the retic industry was slowly kind of just like going downhill. Um, and then now, boom, we have a popular um, animal that people are wanting more and more of. So there you go. Do you want to cut the episode there? No. <laughs> I don't no. need to talk anymore. No. No, that no, was no, a no. very good summation. Luke, Lucas, he was just trying to get a cop out and get onto his 4th of July festivities, blow some fingers off. Oh. No, I mean, oh, for man. a general summation, that was a great uh, overview. And basically, all I'm going to do is add a little bit more context and add in a few more details. So... If you don't want to listen, just listen to what Lucas had said and shut me nope, up for the rest of the No, stick around. It's going to be worth it. <laughs> I hope so. Okay. So back to why we're actually here. The first um, true dwarf or super dwarf from the Slayer Island chain that was imported came from Jampea. There were claimed animals that were supposed to have come from Jampea that were imported in the early 90s, but they ended up being an entirely different subspecies, got huge. Um, and it wasn't until 1995 to 1996 when Cameron Tepidellen of Bushmaster imported the first Champayas into the country. Um, you're going to hear Cameron's name mentioned quite a few times during this presentation. He, I don't want to say single-handedly, but he played a very outsized role in bringing these insular populations to the U.S. in captivity. In the early 90s, early no, late 90s, early 2000s, Bushmaster was one of the only people bringing in locality-specific animals. So if you're interested in the green tree pythons, like Lucas's becoming more of a green tree python nerd over a reticulated python one, you will hear Cameron and Bushmaster mentioned all the time because he was bringing in locale-specific GTPs. Um, and then, unlike the previous episode... I was able to connect with a lot of these people firsthand, including Cameron. So all of this information does come, or some of this information does come from him. So if it's incorrect, take it up with him. This is how he told it to me. So he was the first one to import it in 1995 to 1996. 
he was probably the one that came up with the term dwarf. And that's a, I would say, correct term. If you want it to be scientific, it would be dwarfed. But for dwarfed. <laughs> I mean, it's that's true. that's something only I care about, and I recognize that. But for captive purposes, I don't see an issue with the term dwarf. No, I mean, I've seen other people fighting that terminology as well. So, I no, including me, but including that, me. But that's only when it comes to science. For it. Yes, because if it's science, that's something different. But if it's just common colloquial, I don't care. So, dwarfs probably came from him. And these animals were originally pretty small when they came in. Um, I would say probably all less than 10 feet. They weren't massive, but then very soon they um, became massive. So the first image on our left is the late great Jim Gaspar. Um, I only heard incredible things when people were remembering him during our conversations. He famously had three F1s from the Baldagos. I'll get into that a little later. But um, his snakes grew massive. One of his females got to, I believe, 18 and a half feet. And there's a video on Jake Klotz's YouTube channel of him and Shane messing with one of them so i think mm-hmm. anyone try, trying to hold trying to hold the jam together yeah <laughs> yeah just I mean, a that, massive snake that that one in the picture is easily 12 13 feet uh, yeah. yeah massive snake um and that's only an f1 so one generation removed from the wild right from what i can tell the first captive breeding of jam was from alan cindy baldago they were the ones who produced the first super tigers. They were briefly mentioned in the last episode, and they'll get a further mention. Excuse me. I can't tell if the Baldagos got their animals from Cameron or if Al imported them. He was the first one to import Boland's pythons. Um, fun fact there. Um, there's a very interesting story regarding him and Boland's pythons, but that's out of the purview of this show. Is that some of the information shared in uh, stolen world? I don't know. Maybe I, I know there's a chapter or two on uh, Boland's pythons in there. I just can't, that would be I, a good I can't question. quite remember. It's been a year or two since I read yeah. that book, but nevertheless, he was the first person to bring them in. So a lot of history there. Unfortunately, uh, he and Cindy are no longer in the reptile trade, no longer interested in speaking about reptiles. So I can't confirm these details with them, unfortunately. But they were the first to breed them in 1999. And what they did was they would sell the offspring through people like Bob Clark, Mike Wilbanks, and Nerd um, under their banners. And a lot of time, those babies would go out into Europe because even at that time, Europe had a stronger locality market than the U.S. Eventually, the Baldagos sold their trio of wildcats to Mike Wilbanks. Um, Mike Wilbanks will be another name you hear all the time uh, in this presentation, even though you think of him for black-eyed leucistics and ball pythons. And then for our middle photo, um, another name you're going to hear once again, Garrett J. Hartle, quite a bit in this presentation. Um, that is a DeBoard pastel Jampea on a clutch of eggs. Sean DeBoard, I believe, got his animals from the Baldagos. Pastel, it was a um, anatheristic, but they didn't know that at the time. They were pretty, so he just called them pastels. Um, those pastels. You know what I like about that? Mm-hmm. Is that that anery jampeas are typically super yellow? 
right? They're one yeah. of the ones that show yellow. And that, I mean, pastel kind of makes sense. Well, also the time frame, because it was near the yeah, same the pastel time ball pythons and Graziani and McCurley independently proved out pastel, pastel jungle, yeah. if you're a history nerd. Um, and then DeBoard's animals went to Greg Bryant, who we previously mentioned on the other episode, a very nice gentleman. He called them the Mercury line. And then for a lot of the old timers, they'll get a kick out of this. Um, Henry Weasel, 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 something like that. Um, he called his animals that he got from DeBoard the Phantasm line. Uh, you might know him for calling certain morphs the werewolf killers. Um <laughs> I think another that's, one was Gargoyle. That's new to me. Yeah, I was going to oh, say, this is all brand new. That's oh, awesome. He was, I, everyone hated him. Um, no, <laughs> I, he wasn't at the level of animal abuse of Samson, but he was doing shady stuff. You need to get someone who's very old on to talk about that, because obviously I didn't live that firsthand. But um, a lot of very interesting stories there. Um, and then... On all the way to the right, we have a or just a normal Jampea produced by Theron. We hardly ever see pure Jampeas anymore. There was a clutch that Reach Out Reptiles produced a few years ago, and then Theron took one of the males from that clutch and bred it to a Baldago Gaspar line um, female. And those and, are um, the only two clutches that I know of in recent history. Yes. And I should say that the Gaspars only had three animals. They had two females and one male. Um, so even though you hear things like the Gaspar line thrown around a lot, there's not a whole lot of animals that actually come from them. I think Jason told me that they produced three or four clutches in total. Granted, they were big clutches, but one of the other, um, I think it was Spaz, never actually had fertile eggs. So, Okay. And those it's three very animals, limited were they genetic related diversity. at all? Do you know? No. Okay. Um, maybe. I mean, no, we, they were. I'd have to go check through my messages, but they were I mean, if they, if the, the chances of them being related if they were brought in on the same shipment is kind of high. But if they were brought in in different shipments, it may be a little bit safer of a bet that they're not. But I mean, at least from my perspective, from what I heard, if you get a shipment of like Calato or whatever coming in and they're all in a bag and they're all the same age, roughly, it's likely that they picked up a clutch or they picked up a group of animals that were together that likely are related. Um, I believe the Baldagos only had a trio, one male and two females. So I think the same male sired both clutches, but I know yeah. that the... Um, they picked animals from different from two different females, so the male might cool. have been the same, but I know the dams were different. Okay, cool. Okay, uh, do you guys have any questions about Jampeas? I'm going to ask you that on everyone, just so no, I don't get lost. I love Jampeas. Yes. Nope they're they're gorgeous, and uh, I use a little bit of them to spice up my stuff. But that's jam sauce. Yep. Yeah. Thank you, Garrett. I will add that I think with Jampeas, the reason why a lot of people aren't very fascinated in them anymore is because a lot of people, what I hear is they are very much um, basically a larger version of what a Kalatoa looks like, right? And so I guess to the naked eye and to what a lot of people, you know, that aren't very in tuned with, you know, the the locality stuff, a lot of people just look at a Jamp and look at a Kalatoa and they're like, oh yeah, there's similarities, so I'd rather have the smaller one. But um, if any of you are locality nerds, Jampea is a, like a very 
historic and classic like dwarf to have in your collection. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better. It was really a lot of those original early ones getting massive that turned off people. Right. Um, I think I touched briefly on that in one of the previous episodes where um, the dwarf and super dwarfs were brought in and they were seen as a way to reduce the size of morphs. Um, and then they kind of just got lost from there. Okay, super dwarfs. This is a very interesting topic. There's a lot of very interesting information behind these animals, so let's get into it. So super dwarfs were first imported by Mike Wilbanks and Bob Clark in 1999. They were they worked hand in hand during this time. Obviously, they're no longer um, business partners, but then they were. Uh, that would be uh, Mike Wilbanks at that time was Constrictors Unlimited, and then Bob Clark is Bob Clark Reptiles, obviously. Mike Wilbanks was the first one to call them Super Dwarfs, and this actually caused a rift between him and Al Baldago, because Al and Bald- Cindy Baldago produced the first Super Tigers, but Al took offense to the term because of how similar they were, Super Tiger, Super Dwarf. And they didn't get along after that, from what I was told. But uh, also, from what I was told, Al Baldago was a bit of a spicy man. So, well, in in terms of captive breeding, I mean, super dwarf can be a little bit misleading in terminology. Oh, it's a horrible word. Term. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you can Who? breed two dwarfs together and get a super form. Right? Is that Glenn? Is that you on the Patreon who always makes that joke, or is that someone else? Someone That's else. Someone else. Or some... Someone on our Patreon always jokes around, like when we talk about super dwarfs. That's like, yeah, you took a dwarf and dwarf together and created a super dwarf. <laughs> What's unfortunate is people think that simply because of the name, um, right? Oh well. Um, the image on your left, what? Sorry about your feelings. Oh well. <laughs> Facts. Don't That's kind of what feelings. it sounded like. <laughs> no, I mean, when it comes to super dwarfs. You have to do so much research when you're first getting into it to be able to just understand what you're getting into. Yeah, right. That's right. A shame, but here nor there. So this is where it gets interesting is trying to figure out where these original super dwarfs came from. Um, that image on the left there, that is what I would call a Clark or Wilbank strain super dwarf. Uh, one of the very first ones, just so you have an idea of what it looks like and Correct me if I'm wrong, but that looks like a locality cross to me, just because of how beautiful it is. What do you think? Uh, wait, wait, the one on the left? Yeah, Adam Richardson's photo. It, it's yeah. hard to tell. It's, it's it could be. Really it kind of looks like, madu. The rosettes are almost white on part of it. It's really, really busy, so it's it's hard to tell. It definitely has madu influence, and that would make yeah. sense for the time frame. But I think it's a cross just because of how yeah yellow and pretty it is. Yeah how light it is but it, it's um, hard to tell i mean you that could just be an animal that's fired up as well so yeah that's mm-hmm. true good point so i'm going to read verbatim from the notes here just so i don't get it wrong to try to track down the history of where which island the super doors came from so the first comment i can find was that the exporter for these insists that the island was tiny uninhabited and unnamed so uh <laughs> We can't even speculate which island it would be because it doesn't have a name. The next iteration was that it was an island near Kaiwati or Kalatoa, though none of the group was collected from Kaiwati. Okay. All right. I can't confirm this next one, but I was told this by a 
reputable source is that on a forum at one time, Bob Clark stated that they um, were from an island off of Sumatra. Great. So um, now we have now some of our crosses that we have come from tiny islands off of Sumatra. Yes. And then the current story is that all of them came from Kalatoa and that was first made public in 2016 by Bob Clark. He I also have, said that again in 2022 or 2023. 2023 he went, yeah. Yeah. He went, he went back and said like, Oh, my exporter reached out to me. They're all from Kalatoa. I don't know. I mean, it could be, I will say I talked to someone who went through the shipments and said some of them had the classic Kalatoa look and then others didn't. So take it with a yeah. grain of salt. I've also even heard that some of these original super dwarfs were Jampeas. So, right. Who knows? Really small um, Jampeas. Really small Jampeas. So the very first shipment, Bob Clark and Mike Wilbank split. And then Bob split the second shipment with Jay Brewer. The third shipment, the original iteration of Slither Inc. bought the entire shipment. Travis, who will be on the previous week's episode, got either got some animals off the, either the fourth or fifth shipment. Just to give you a little time frame here of who got what when. The very first captive bred and born super dwarfs that I can find trace back to Dan Yaramovich of what was then pro reptiles in the summer of 2003. Bob Clark and Jim Mason also um, are said to have produced the first super dwarfs, but in the timeline that I was shared with, um, it looks like Dan Yaramovich holds that title. And one of the animals that descended from the animals he brought in is featured on the right. And that is a photo from Garrick Meyer. Once again, a name more familiar with those in the ball python realm. But very early on, he did have super dwarfs. He brought them into albinos, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Brian Kamala's line also comes from pro reptiles. And then Nathan Katz's line also comes from the. Uh, yeah. And that those were handed down to Ben Rennick was working with those quite a bit. Oh, yeah. So that is the history of super dwarfs as I understand it. Um, and then I have to give Garrett props for this. The terms old school super dwarf is a great way to talk about the general small sized populations of reticulated pythons that came in with no locality data. Because right. if we don't know, don't guess that was on your, um, what is a pure locality video? So that right. is an excellent term and I hope people, uh, use it. I agree. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think I, I think what I, I'd like people saying old school Superdorf, but a lot of people on their posts put OG Superdorf, like original gangster Superdorf, and I, that OG for like Orange Glow or yeah. you know I, I just you know uh, yeah I, I like old school, and I think people should spell that out and not just put like OG yeah. old school original, just something to clarify a little bit better. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, we're only going to touch on this very briefly, but a lot of the old people, or I shouldn't say old people, some of the people who have Gosh. been in the reticulated python industry for longer, I mean, not all of them are old. Some of them are only a couple years, like a decade or two older than me, um, but you know what I meant. Um, we'll be familiar with these super jamps. They were jampeas crossed with super dwarfs. I think Mike Wilbanks was the first to do this. Don't quote me on that but it would have made sense. These animals were said to only get around eight feet long. Obviously that wasn't true because my wild caught calatoa males eight foot long. 
So there's no reason to think a Jampea and Kalatoa or see, I got caught up These there. Were straight 50, 50 crosses. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, even, even one of my 12 and a half percent Jampea, 75% Kalatoa is, is 10 feet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the eight foot is a misnomer. Um, Likewise, um, the Gaspar's F1 Jampea was supposed to only get eight feet, and uh, Jim and Jason proved Al and Cindy wrong on that. Um, we don't really see Super Jamps anymore. At the time that they were originally bred, they were known to be very, very aggressive. Someone referred them to me as chainsaws. Um, I believe Theron Lance actually just produced a clutch of Super Jamps, so it's I have interesting. An to- oh, yeah. So what's the uh, disposition on that one? hes I mean, I've only had him for a week, but I got him out of the bag and I've held him another time. He's in shed, but he's a sweetheart. Mm. And now that we're more time, more generations removed from the wild, that makes sense. And we're keeping them in um, generally better care than um, those early days, just because we know more now, which is fantastic. So just a little, you know, throwback. Yeah, and in terms of our like keeping and husbandry, I think we owe a, a pretty big shout out to uh, wow uh, Dave Kaufman for doing his videos in Indonesia and showing you know just a little bit more about how these animals are living. Yeah, cool. Yeah, anyone who's going out there and providing those first accounts is huge. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I saw those animals hanging out in the trees above the river, it spoke a lot. Well, and people have already made the mistake, so we don't need to make those same mistakes again. Yeah. Right. We're in the 2020s now. We don't have to keep them in boxes. Yeah. Well, we should keep them in boxes, just better boxes. (laughs) Better boxes, fancier boxes, Uh, boxes with stuff. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was my point last episode. Okay. You can go to the next slide, Nathan. So Lucas has that female now that's on your left there. Uh, This is one of his favorite um, localities. It's Slayers. From what I can tell, they were first imported in 1999, probably from Cameron. Um, Mm -hmm. Greg Bryant was the person who is really known for them of the Retic Ranch. He's not involved in reptiles anymore. However, very nice gentleman. He told me he got his original wild cots from Nerd, who probably got them from Cameron. Um, tracking historically, that would make sense. I haven't confirmed that with Cameron, but I mean, very likely. Um, the story he, Greg, told me is that these original snakes were very, very mean. And Lucas can attest to how mean his slayer is. So I will say this, my, my Slayer came from the second clutch of F1s from the Wildcott pair. Um, Chris McVicker actually has like a 20-year-old uh, that came from the very first clutch, and his female is an F1 from, so basically an older sister than my female. And uh, it seems like when me and Chris talk about our Slayers, they're almost the exact same in regards to like, there's days where like, super manageable, and then there's days where they want us dead, right? So there's days where... I can get her out, put her in a tub, clean her enclosure, take her out, and she's totally fine. And then there's days where getting her out of her cage is a 10-minute venture and putting her back in. She's turning around, mouth open. Um, my my AE Stony hook, the polycarbonate hook that I have, has her lovely teeth and dentions inside of it um, that I've had to sand down because she scuffed up. <laughs> 
So, um, yeah, just hit or miss. But um, I want to make a comment, if you don't mind. We we talked about like we talked about if you don't know, don't guess locality. Right. And I mean, I think that these pictures side by side, perfect demonstration on how phenotypic expression from a locality can vary so much. Those are two very known uh slayers but like if you look at the one on the left the female i have now she's has a, a more broken up pattern with you know clear circular definitions very orange and vibrant and if you look at the one on the right it's got a more you know connected dorsal striping pattern towards the top so just because you think you know what a locality looks like i promise there are probably animals on that island that look drastically different than what you can associate that animal with mm. oh yeah and that photo on the right was someone taken who took it from the island who knew what street he found it on. So that is yeah, 100% a legitimate slayer. But once again, there's lots of different phenotypic variation within these animals. Yeah. Our eyes are never going to be the best tool to determine locality. Yeah. Especially right. if we're colorblind. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. So um, Greg Brown. I, like, I, like, I like Glenn's fat boy laugh. He's got the like... <laughs> I was going to do something rude. All right. Keep going. Sorry. I can't laugh, okay? I can only wheeze. So rude. I don't know. Greg Um, Bryant. Greg Bryant. Yes. His original snakes were very mean underweight. He, it took a year to really get them adjusted to captivity. And even then it took several more months before they were able to breed. They, did eventually adjust, but they were never tame. One of the things you mentioned, Lucas, was um, Chris McVickers getting one from one of the original clutches. Greg Bryant told me that his original clutch, which was the first um, U.S. captive bred and born, was between 03 and 04. So I need to check with Chris on what date his came from, because I think yeah, his so would he, have been that. He says he got, he got his from Aubrey a few years back and when Aubrey sold it. Um, it was about 17, 18 years old. So that would put that animal at around 20. And he knows for a fact that he, his animal is a, 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 a retic ranch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Slayer. I confirm so that as with old, as, Greg Branch. Uh, yeah. As old as she is, it's gotta be that first clutch. Yeah. And Greg Bryant spoke very highly of Chris McVicker. Shout out to Chris yeah. McVicker. He, he's a great example of someone who's been doing this for a long time, but is advancing and progressing. He, yeah, he's, he's not stuck in the old ways. Yeah. Yeah, he's so, one of my favorite people to talk to in this industry. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've never heard anyone say anything bad about him, just someone who Chris, deeply cares suck. about the animals. <laughs> so, thank you, Chris. Lucas, um, why haven't then, we had him on yet? You have. We have. Oh, Come on. We talked about it's, U.S. It's Arkham. almost been a year. I'm, I'm starting to forget <laughs> shit. Sorry. <laughs> We've had him on. Hey, we, actually, he was, he was actually the one of the, like, the title of the episode was The Evolution of Keeping Retics. Yeah. Let's have we, him used on the ex- <laughs> we used the exact example of what we're talking about with him. <laughs> okay. Final point on Slayers. The first captive breeding that I can find in the United Kingdom was by Jason Peacock on February 6th, 2023. So a full two decades after the first one in the U.S. Why it took so long, I don't know, but kind of interesting. Those were produced yeah. this year, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah. They were... Um... 
I don't know. Slayers seem to have that same reputation as uh, Sulawesi's. It seems like they are just difficult to breed. And I'm sure the reason why is because captively we're keeping them like every other retic that produces normally. And I'm sure there's something different to that area and island that we're missing. Maybe you can be the first one to figure it out. Doubt it, but we'll see. (laughs) Okay, you can go to the next slide, Nathan. All right. So I think there was. Am I out of order? I'm out of order. I mean, you are, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Madu's next. Madu's next. Um, Well, I'm trying to do notes this time. So it's not me reading off a PowerPoint. That way, audio is better and then visual, it's also better. So my fault. Okay. Madu's. That Madu on the left. That is like the perfect example of a Madu in my mind. That yeah. wide open back pattern, just perfect. That's manly, by the way. Is so that, that would from be... the the poster image that Garrett produced? Uh, maybe. So that one is from Rodney. Um, is that Grandma Madu? No, no. So Rodney's 2011 clutch produced those F ones. Yeah. And then the F2s have been produced a couple times now. So nice ovulation in the picture, too. <laughs> That's a male. Oh, is it it's really? Just okay, home. just yeah. a really good meal. <laughs> it's Eating so good. low on it's so low on the body. I was like, oh cool, we got an ovulating <laughs> retic on, on here. No, so um Madus were originally called Honey Island. This is something that even a month ago I was talking to someone about who um separated them as different localities. So even 20 years later, it's still being confused. And the reason why is that Palua Madu roughly translates to Honey Island when you're going from Indonesian to English. So they were originally brought in as Honey Islands. This would have been at the turn of the century. Um, whoever made me clarify that statement last time, the turn of the 21st century by probably Cameron. However, I don't have a first import date. He told me he was probably the first one to do it. And once again, that makes sense. Excuse me. Now, Lucas, I, I know this is the locality that got you interested into retics. Mm-hmm. Um, how come you don't have any yet? Um, I was can't supposed to be. It. No, I, I would have dropped them. Dude, I just spent way too much money on a green tree python. Uh, but I can... Uh, uh, I was supposed to be on that wait list, and um, at the time, like two years ago, I was 10th on the list, and um, we're still on the list, I guess. Um, at this, at this point, at this point, I'm waiting for people with F2s to produce F3s, or if I find <laughs> someone who wants to sell the F2s, I'll snag one. Uh, yeah, I definitely, they're, they're, that's a bucket list uh, superdor for me. I'm not, I'm not on the Karampa hype train, but what? the Madu hype train... The Madu definitely, and that's just because it's nostalgic. Um, yeah, I'll, I don't. I got my own strong opinions about Karampa that we won't get into. Oh, I love them. I do too. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love I love every locality, but um, price point for what you're getting, people will pay it. No, clearly, yeah. <laughs> Not me. I mean, I, <laughs> I can't fault anyone for that because if you can get ten thousand dollars for them. You do that. That's good for you. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, back to Madu's. 
because there was the confusion between Madu and Honey Island, there were probably captive breedings, but they would have been considered different localities because people didn't know that they were, in fact, from the same island. So the earliest clutch that I can find and that other people have suggested is Rodney's 2011 clutch. Um, those F1s are one of two extant breeding lines. There is someone who has like six Madus still and won't breed them. Doesn't want to give them up either. I mean, shout out to that guy. Good for him. Offered money for them. <laughs> Good for him. Um, so we have very limited genetic diversity, unfortunately, with that locality. Um, both lines are known to produce anethoristic um and they were imported in mass in the early days, but because knowing the locality and then breeding pure localities together wasn't important, they weren't really appreciated for that. And then we have kind of a different example of a Madu on the right with a different phenotype, still very Madu-esque, but a little bit different than Manly that's on the left. Right. Still kind of an open back pattern, but has that stripe in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. Like it still looks open, but you got that dividing line in there. Um, but yeah, Murray Mack is a great dude. Talked to him a lot of times and, uh, the modules that he produced were phenomenal. Well, yeah. and even on Garrett's animal, you can see that, that stripe trying to, right. It's trying itself. its best. I, I picked that example because I'm looking for drastic examples of right. the different phenotypes. So there's, yeah, I just, I also want to make a comment as well. We start to go through these like Slayer, very genetic diversity limited, like it's super limited. Um, you know, same thing with the Madus, even more limited. But as we start to even go in these, you know, Kaiwadi, limited. Tumbalogan, definitely limited. Oh, yeah. We'll get to um, Tumbalogan, so limited. They right. Yeah. Karapa, super limited. I mean, even Kalatoa after last week's episode, we, I mean, it's definitely more available. But anyways. Okay. I think that's everything for Madu. You want to go to the next one? Yeah. Bye, Madu. Kaiwadi. Okay, one of my favorite localities. And once again, we can thank Cameron for bringing in the first one. He brought in the first ones in 1999. He um, sold them to Pro Exotics, which was Chad Brown and Robin. What's his last name? It starts with an M. Marklin. Marklin. Thank you. I thought that's what it was, but I didn't want to say. They originally owned Pro Exotics. Unfortunately, it burned down, I think, in 2011. Um, if people remember the original Desert Ball Python, not Desert Ghost, they were the ones responsible for bringing that in. And then it was realized that the females were infertile and horrible. I mean, it, that situation was horrible because everyone loved deserts. And then pretty much overnight, that project became um, worthless. But yep. we have Desert Ghost, which is very close to the same mutation. And now everyone's confused because they have to learn what a polygenic mutation is. Right. It's not that complicated. And I don't know why the prices are going down on them because it's the exact same mutation that we've had for 20 years. I saw one for only a visual for only $800 at the San Antonio shop here or at the San Antonio show last weekend. That's crazy. That is pretty wild. Yeah. And they weren't anything special to all that it's, long it's, ago. It's what they do that makes yeah. them special. If you look at a desert ghost through and through, meh. It ends up being a brown ball python with some blushing when it's older. But, you know, you look at what it does to different morphs and that's what it, it's really, that's where the value is. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, and, and I you... don't know anything about ball python. So if I got that wrong, people, you you can hang me. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, all I know about the DG stuff is Antoine's working with it heavy. So. I also know that people are pissed off that they spent like 20000 on the project now. But <laughs> that's, that's well, the hype train with anything in reptiles, right? Right. Did you see that I updated the slide to include your photo, Lucas? I did. I feel special. <laughs> I mean, I love Basil quite a lot, so... She's I my had girl. That, that was my first retake ever. She's beautiful. We'll get into the two different main, two different uh, phenotypic expressions for the animals mm-hmm. that are in captivity that represent that locality. But the first came in from Cameron through Pro Exotics in 1999. Um, two females came in gravid, and they were sold to Dr. Winslow Murdoch. Um, his line of Kiowatis, line of Kiowatis. Um, the Murdoch line or the Doc Murdoch line, however you want to call it, are very well known. That anim- those animals produce very dark reds. I think Kiowatis are perhaps the most identifiable of all the traditional super dwarf uh, localities. And that one is the photo on your left. And these came in as super dwarfs, but they had the known locality information on them. So Funny, that's what. Fun, fun fact even that one on the left, great Murdoch, like phenotypic expression, but that's also a half Murdoch, half slither line. Yeah, we'll get into that. Um, <laughs> well, it deserves its own story. Um, so Dr. Winslow Murdoch kept a pair from both clutches, and then he got three more wildcots, including one from Mike Wilbanks. I don't think that one ever bred. So we have very limited um, genetic diversity of coyotes. We can say that for everything else. Dr. Winslow Murdoch was the first to produce them in 2003. Something I only learned recently was that it was the same year when the first um, UK captive bred in Bournes um, happened. And that was by a gentleman gentleman named uh, John Griffin. Uh, he got his from a 2000 shipment of super dwarfs um, from Indonesia. And then he later learned that they were Kiowatis. And something I neglected to mention because I neglected to write it down on my notes is that... Um, Madus were first produced in the uh, in the UK, Sweden, and France in 2006. So, a full half a decade before the ones um, that were produced by Rodney. Back to what I was saying about Kiowati, if I can find my notes. The two main phenotypic expressions are the Murdoch line and then the Slither line. Do you want to talk about that, Lucas? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I, I think the picture on the left is a good example of a Murdoch line. So the Murdoch line is definitely known for having those deeper oranges and reds and a chain link like pattern that goes along the back, um, with thicker blacks. Um, the Slither line, Slither line was, uh, they were imported by Bushmaster, obtained by Raul Diaz and then produced by Slither when he got them from Raul Diaz and wait, those animals who, have, wait, go back. Who imported them? Did you say? Um, I'm sorry, DM Exotics. DM Exotics. You're right? correct. Thank you for correcting me on that. Yep, that was DM. That was Dan Maliri. Um, Dan Maliri. You need to have him on. We just I got Bushmaster on my mind. Um, please have Dan. Yeah, on. Dan. He's someone that, dude. He's he's a busy dude. If we want to have him on at the time that we record, that would be like 3 a.m. his time. Um, but we'll try. No, he's we'll try. in California. Um, he's again. definitely someone. I mean, I, oh, good. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll reach out to him. Um, but yeah, anyways, those have um, a lot higher saddle count, um, are a lot more silver and yellow. And um, I don't know if maybe the 
more silver trait is because we've recently been able to prove out Anri in those line of Kaiwadis. Um, and so um, maybe that's why the color of some of those animals are a lot more, you know, there's more silver in the background tones and they're more yellow. But um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's really cool to the uneducated who, who, and not uneducated, but a lot of people have gotten a lot of their information on Kaiwadi from Garrett because he did that episode with Murdoch and he shows off the Murdoch animals. So a lot of people are always very like, oh, that doesn't look Kaiwadi when they ask me um, about my animals and um, just have to have that education like I'm doing right now about different phenotypic expressions and um, those kind of things. So I think out of all of the animals that you have shown as far as drastic different phenotypic expressions, this is probably the biggest one. And Dr. Murdoch bred for those specific traits too. So right. you have line breeding. Yeah. You have selective breeding for a certain phenotype, which also explains the drastic differences. Also, I should have mentioned this, that some Kaiwadis are very, very dark. Um, once again, Chris McVicker had some of the original imported SDs from Bob, he sent me a photo and it's a very dark animal and it has a phenotype more in line with a Kaiwadi. So once again, right. very interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, even like what I want to do with the Kaiwadis is I want to just like how Murdoch enhanced for that, that chain link, I'm going to selectively breed for those rosettes and try to increase those rosette counts. I want to have like tiny dots all on the side, all white floating epicness so so is floating there epicness. a line that you guys prefer over the slither and the murdoch line Ooh, that's a good question because i know for me Kiowati i like glenn answered always, that i'm biased kaiwadi for me was always kind of for uh, just not to be that nice i guess is uh one of the more boring lines of uh localities for me um, it's grown on me quite a bit seeing animals in person and seeing the different phenotypic ex expressions. I think for me, that Murdoch line with all those deep oranges and reds, that's, that's what I would go for. Uh, I'm going to, yeah, I, I like, I like yeah. that color too. Yeah. I think that that one is more visually appealing than the, the slither line. Um, I, from a locality standpoint and keeping both, I like to have my line over that one just because not my, my line, but the slither line that I have just because it stands out from my Slayer stuff. Because if you look at that Murdoch line, it's got like the orange and red undertones and kind of thicker blacks. But then if I compare that to a Slayer, the Slayer blows that one out of the water in terms of those phenotypic expressions. And so when I'm trying to use a specific locality to enhance a look, I'm going to go Slayer before I go with the Murdoch line. Yeah. Um, Whereas with the Kaiwadi I have in that slither line, uh, the reduced thin blackie on the top and the the high uh, rosette count on the side with the whites, I don't see that in a lot of superdors. Yeah, that's what I was going to say essentially is that the Murdoch line has a specific look that you don't see in a lot of dwarf and superdwarfs. So just because it's right. different, that's why I'm drawn to it. Um, and then I had lost my train of thought, but on the darker ones from Kaiwadi, it is probably likely that the black pastel mutation, have you guys heard of that? Yeah. Probably yeah, a dark Kaiwadi. Matthew Martin. If you right. had to think about it. Even where... though they're labeled as Kalatoa, but, but... Yeah, I mean, that's a whole different story, but call them super dwarfs. Yeah, but anyways. Uh, but if yeah, I... It does look yeah. like a... Looks like a Kaiwadi. I'd agree with that. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, I think we've covered Kaiwadis fairly well. What's next? Kala Toa. Kala Otoa. If you guys keep spelling Kala Toa without the O in there, I'm going to smack y'all. That's a good segue of how I spelled things the way I did. I use the Indonesian Geospatial Agency spellings for this. So they have a national gazette I went through. Can you tell us in English what that means? (laughs) Big Brother spells the names of islands a certain way. And because I can't think for myself, I have to rely on Big Brother to know how to spell it. So on Google Maps, that's how they're spelled. Spell it however you want. One of the silliest bits of infighting that we have within the locality retic market. I don't care how you spell it. Just have a reason behind it. That's my opinion. As long as I know what you're selling. Spell it however you want. I'm not going to yell at you. If you want to call it Tombalongan and say I was they in they were imported as Tombalongans, I don't care. If you want to drop the extra O and say that's because that's what they were brought in as, who cares? I I am offering one explanation. You can have a different one. Yeah. Okay. Kalatoas, one of my favorite localities. That's my boy in those photos. What's interesting is we actually don't know a lot historically about Kalatoas. I don't know who the first was to breed them in captivity. I don't think anyone does because I've asked everyone that, almost everyone who I've spoken with that question. Cameron was probably the first one to import them at the turn of the century, but that's about it historically. Um, There's just not a lot of information. The Baldagos did have Kalatoas. Once again, I don't know if Cameron brought them in or Al brought them in. and there were several people to breed them in the UK and in Europe in 2004, 2005. But on the US side of things, there's not a whole lot of information, even though they're probably the most represented super dwarf or dwarf locality in captivity. What do you guys think? That's kind of crazy. Have much to add to that. I, I, don't, yeah, I, mean, I don't have anything to say. Spot. Like, yeah. I, I, I have a lot of strong feelings and thoughts about it that I'm not going to say, but. If you're just looking at it objectively, not going into the different lines, um, I don't have much history to tell you, which is unfortunate. I mean, I can tell which you. Which is kind of crazy. Yeah, that's I mean, crazy a, to me. I mean, let, let me let me ask you that the most represented, and again, I'm just going to ask a question and Glenn answer or don't answer, and then I'm going to leave it at this. But considering that we consider Kalatoa one of, if not the only, um, uh, your cat sounds like it's singing. In the okay, she is like 18 years old. Um, she's lost her mind. It's just... Oh, so she's dying. <laughs> no, um, she's but I guess my question, my good. question is, my question is like, if it's one of the most like uh, uh, sustainable, that's the word I'm looking for. Like a lot of people say, like Calto is one of the most sustainable localities out there, but yet we have zero historical information on it. What does that say? I mean, there are a few Kalatoas that I know are Kalatoas um, that we do have historical information on. Like, my, I can tell you everything I know about my snake, but he's never bred. Yeah, your sterile snake. My sterile male. Um, so <laughs> he's a wild-caught male, but he's not adding any genetic diversity. So, Unfortunately, because he's beautiful, which is oh, that, that pictured animal right there for those of you that, that I, I actually might be getting. Don't get me. I'm 
number one, thank you, but I'm still very mad that I have to give him up. Hey, very. All, all yeah. your choices. Oh, come on. <sighs> no, it was the only the school that would accept him. Allow. No, it he wasn't. Probably, he, he, probably, he probably applied to every veterinary school in Florida. That dump fire show is like, eh, we'll take you. The best school for exotic animal veterinary medicine. I know. I know. I'm being facetious and sarcastic. You're just digging the knife in because I didn't get into my uh, instant yeah, school. But, I am. But I am proud of you. Florida's a big uh, accomplishment. Thank so, you. Glenn, that's your ultimate goal, exotic uh, animal vet? Something. He um, wants to be a vet tech and get a degree in vet tech from <laughs> from Florida. No. Already a certified vet assistant already done that i don't want to do that anymore he's getting but, an eight-year degree in vet tech <laughs> i think Sorry. for some people it does take eight years for what should be a two-year degree but um i'm veterinary medicine wise i am interested in um big picture vet med which is kind of hard to explain but i always point to the northern white rhinos which is an effectively extinct subspecies um however the san diego zoo has frozen egg and sperm from them and they are working on artificially inseminating southern white rhinos eventually with that egg and sperm to continue on the subspecies so that's what i'm very interested in taking a bigger picture yeah They've successfully done it with southern white rhino um, egg and sperm, but they haven't tried northern white rhino. So I am a lot better at the big picture than the minute. So uh, I want to find a career where I can focus on that. All right. Big picture concert. Glenn's going to be responsible for bringing woolly mammoths back to life. (sighs) No. I do want to bring back the Tasmanian tiger. I think that would be awesome. That's something that we can actually do. I've read into that. Yeah, we can do it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Kalatoas. We know nothing about Kalatoas. <laughs> All right. So. They were brought in early 2000s. Other than there's a lot of them. There's a lot of things named Kalatoas. Um, well, and then, they're pretty. They're very I guess pretty. You, yeah. would, you would have to jump into there's also the, the possibility just in terms of uh, location with Kalatoa that you know, that there's island uh, crossing happening naturally. No? Absolutely not. Okay, this is, you're going to see me get mad. Because um, <laughs> we have talked. I feel the same way about this topic too. People in this industry talk about, you know, it's it's potentially possible <laughs> that they could swim. And, you know. if, if you were to look at the oceans that separate the islands and the type of currents and waves that go through, those things are dead. They're not yeah, wait, swimming okay, miles and miles. It takes, getting... it it takes 12 freaking it takes almost a day to get to island to island out there I read one paper about Glenn, the indonesian speak. seas one read one paper about the flores sea and you will see how misguided that idea is okay yeah it's unforgiving um ask and Daniel that's all on that who who's yeah anyways yeah i really um, think you should get damn yeah, weird on the show oh okay yeah, I mean, I, I he's definitely like top three people on there um, that I would like to to talk to. Yeah, oh, we need to actually. I want to have him on Nathan, but we have to have a good series of of questions to ask him, or else we're doing a disservice. Oh yeah, no, for our I mean, listeners. I in terms of like important people in the reptile industry, I put 
Dan, way at the top. At the top, yep. Okay. Before I I, okay, anything else to add about Kalatoa? Nothing about Kalatoa. <laughs> Let's or... move on before he, he starts steaming out of his ears. Before he blows I'm a gas. literally shaking. <laughs> All right, let's watch. Let's watch okay. his color return to normal and start talking about Tombalongans. Oh, you just said Tombo. Tambalongans. 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 So these guys it's are the Phantoms. These guys are, in my view, very interesting because they are the first of these localities and the only, excuse me, to not originally come from. U.S. captive breedings. Um, they were first imported in 2000 by Carson Wolder of Philaretic. He imported two what he called black-eyed candies, and the male is what is on the right. Um, they were calicos. He thought it could be a um, new mutation, but it wasn't. So that first breeding was in March of 2012. And the resulting progeny are called the candy line because they originated from those black-eyed candies. Um, the first time they were imported was in 2013 by Eric Easter of Fascination Herps um, from that pairing. Those made it to sawfish reptiles, and the only captive breeding in the U.S. of Tambalongans was on March 6, 2018. And that one clutch is the only... Um, source of genetic diversity in the u.s and they're already inbred so yeah i i think in terms of quick question difference in phenotype expression this is maybe my favorite example yes go, sir go for your yeah i think i i think top i think tambalongids are are like just you know right there with Slayer in terms of the best out of those seven islands. Um, but I'm almost wondering, again, if we go back to only one clutch, and I, I've talked to um, Sawfish um, quite extensively, and he tried getting them to breed more than just that once, but was unsuccessful. And so I'm wondering if it's, again, something with the Saputriais that we be. are just not doing correctly, um, that we're just not doing correctly in captivity to get them to to breed. I think you should go buy a pair of Tom Longins and try it out. I have Solaires. Uh, that's not what I said. <laughs> I mean, I want to buy Tambalongans as well. You said Tambalongan, by the way. I know. Just want to throw that as out. As soon there. as I said so, that, I realized. Um, right. I have so, a hard time. Nathan, not that, that, that was your time. To... I have a hard time not saying Tom, uh, Tom Belongan because it makes me think of Tom DeLong from Blink 182. So I call him Tom <laughs> yeah. Belongans. Tom DeLongans. <laughs> um, they're Glenn, really they're quick, on my that animal on the right. Is that in the U.S. or no? No, that's still in no. Germany with Carson. I don't know if it's still alive, but I feel, I, know like, I feel like that would be the perfect animal in terms of like smaller localities for like Shane to work with in his Sunfire the, OGS the, project. The issue with that one though is that was a that it's like a calico tambalong, and that's not replicable. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because both the male and female were calicos. All right. Okay, that's all I have for Tambalongans. We're going to keep moving along. Try to get everyone done. Oh. Okay, Karumpas, the last locality. I'm probably going to call them Karumpas while I'm talking. Karumpa Lumpa Loompas. <laughs> so 
the way the Indian or Indonesian Geospatial Agency recognizes the island is the big one right on right above Kalatoa is uh, Krumpalampo, and then the small one is Krumpakiti. So that's how I'll refer to it. From my understanding, and this could be incorrect, is that the animals called Karumpas were indiscriminately caught on both islands. So do with that what you will. I think that's honestly a little bit interesting and hopefully a greater source of genetic diversity. Um, they were first imported off the island um, late 2012 to early 2013. You can find that in the Hanifa et al. 2016 paper I previously mentioned. The first time I can tell that they were brought into the U.S. was in 2014 by Cameron for Rodney. Um, they weren't widely brought in. Um, however, they are my favorite super dwarf or one of my favorite super dwarf localities. Um, and now they uh, command a very high price tag, which somewhat jealous of. Um, the first captive breeding probably occurred before 2019 in Indonesia. I don't have any specific data on that, but I was told that by a reputable source. The first UK captive breeding occurred on April 2nd, 2019 by Dr. Jen John Edwards. Fantastic gentleman, incredibly kind. Um, both of his parents came from a 20 ship 2015 shipment from James Copen, and there were four babies in total from that clutch. And I think Luke is working with... Um, some of Dr. Edwards' uh, Karumpas, right, Lucas? So, yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful babies. I think he just picked out. I think he just picked out a baby from. Cool, um, very jealous of that. But the first U.S. captive breeding didn't occur until January thirtieth of twenty twenty two. That was at Reach Out Reptiles. Um, very cool clutch. I don't know the exact heritage. Was the female the Annery from Metcalf? The, the one that passed? Yeah. Very possible. <laughs> I, I'm not certain on that. Because so there were anneries in that first clutch, so I don't know the specific heritage, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was that um, one from Aaron Metcalf. And there were previous crosses and crosses attempts. So um, Rodney had tried to breed Kurumpa de Madu. I think that was unsuccessful. And then Rick O'Neill bred a... Kalatoa from Rodney to a Karumpa he got from Rodney um, and created those crosses, which are stunning. Which are phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. That's probably beautiful. my favorite locality crossing that I've seen with the Superdorf stuff. Yeah, those are good stuff. So um, interesting that the first captive breeding occurred outside of the U.S. Um, and yeah, trying to move along here pretty quick. So All right. Took us for, it took us forever to get uh, Karupas uh, produced, but yeah, big accomplishment to get them here. Yeah. So now we're going to move into what I call the dark times, which is the late aughts to the early 2010s. Um, this is when the morph craze in mainlands was um, going crazy. Uh, that was so stupid. Nevertheless, um, there were some people working with dwarf and super dwarfs. The image on your left is Travis Kubis, um, wild caught anthristic male. He was one of the only people working with SDs. A lot of the morph crosses can be traced back to Travis. Um, another name who really isn't mentioned anymore, which is unfortunate, is Chris Brown of Vital Exotics. Um, 
you know, I have that poster above my bed. It's just a great reminder of all the good he did, um, among other things. But shout out to Chris Brown. Now he's a Buffalo farmer in, I think, Wyoming or Montana. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, he's living the good life. And, and were you able to reach out to him and get any information or is he kind of out of the industry and kind of doing his own thing now? I haven't reached out um, because he worked with a lot of the more morph crosses. I don't think he did any pure localities. Okay. Um, and he also did obviously a lot with monitor lizards. Um, if anyone had seen his booth at a show, it was very elaborate. I wish I had a photo, but I only have the photo of the calendar. Um and then, of course, Rodney had his super dwarfs. And the reason why I call this the Dark Ages is that people realized that champeas were getting huge, super dwarfs were considered mean, flighty, all of that. And so there really wasn't a market for them or a market for pure localities. Some people like Chris and like Travis were breeding them into mainlands to make smaller morphs. Um, and we still use a lot of their genetics. Um, but there just wasn't a whole lot of appreciation during this time. Um, I was rewatching one of the videos and Rodney said he was selling super dwarfs for $265 and couldn't get them. And they were also mainly wild caught animals, which speaks to why they were mean flighty, all of that. And towards the end, they got up to $1,500 a pair. Even by yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, even in regards to mean, like st- still even nothing compared to the mainland stuff. Yeah. Um, that was being imported as wild cuts. Like superdors are, are much more inclined to run away than they are to bite. And there's um, on Reach Out Reptiles YouTube video, on YouTube channel, there's a video of Dr. Murdoch explaining how he had to use a trash can lid to clean a, uh, a mainland's enclosure. A wild caught mainland's enclosure. So, oh, that's awesome. They're crazy. That's a good idea. Um, and then we can go to. Oh, got up. How's your day going, Lucas? That's okay. Oh, dang it! He was right about when we're about to switch to the I next know. slide. I'm trying to talk as fast oh, as I can good. here. It's going great. My day's going good. Good. Okay. Sorry, okay. guys. I had someone right out my yeah. door, just honking. <laughs> That's okay. They wanted Next us slide. to call <laughs> Karumpas Karumpas. They're like, damn it. <laughs> Don't misrepresent, misrepresent these animals from what I'm Return to tradition. Okay. Next slide. And I should say that we covered the Lacey Act fairly extensively last time. And that is what could have marked the end of Super Dwarfs, but didn't. It essentially marked the end of mainlands, but it was really the rediscovery of super. Uh, it was really the Lacey Act ban that allowed for the rediscovery of dwarfs and super dwarfs. And I can't think of any other way to summarize the rediscovery than Reach Out Reptiles YouTube channel. Um, even Rodney will admit that Garrett is the reason why super dwarfs and dwarfs are what they are today. It's undeniable how much outreach. Um, the YouTube channel has provided. That's what got me Without back into them. Um, I 
had known Garrett through prehistoric pets. He had given me a tour and then all of a sudden I'm sitting through YouTube and I see his face and I thought, Oh, I recognize him. And then remembered that you could actually own a manageably sized reticulated Python. So. Yeah. The amount of just pure information and clarifying that Garrett did to help this market is insane. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Definitely revive retics. Yeah. And I like to call it the rediscovery because it's not like they weren't out there. We've known about them for right. They were totally there, twenty five years or whatever. They're here. I mean, they've always been there, but I mean, we've okay. had them in the state. Thanks, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> and this is kind of an open ended question that I want to, I want both of you to answer. But what does the future hold? So, I want to get maybe I don't know about controversial, but um, I the captive reptile trade has had a lot of um, turmoil recently. I don't think it was all necessarily bad. I think some of it was very good, but the market is going down. A lot of these longtime breeders are facing newfound criticism, um, can't sell on the most noted platform. Um, And I'm not a breeder, so I don't know the market trends. Both of you are, so... What do you guys think that the future holds for dwarf and super dwarfs? Because we're at a crossroads right now. I think that's fairly, that's not a controversial statement at all. No, not at all. Uh, for me, I think it, in terms of just husbandry, it's just making sure that we're, we're keeping these animals appropriately and giving them a good life. But in terms of the market, I mean, I, I see the just with how how many people have gotten into it, prices going down, which I don't necessarily see as a bad thing. Uh, we, we I don't want, either. We want small retics in homes where they're they're taken care of, and you know, not not everyone who wants to keep a, a tiny retic can spend that ten grand on a carumpa or you know, the four grand it takes to get a pure island locality. So, I I see prices going down, but stabilizing somewhere in the middle, maybe. Lucas, okay. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree with a lot of that. I think that um I think for me it's disappointing to see how quickly the superdorf market is turning into the mainland market with the gene stacking and a bunch of people getting animals and and you know the people that invested 2 years ago in a 50% Anri Motley for $2000 now you can't sell a 50% superdorf Anri Motley for $600. So for people who invested a lot of money a couple of years ago during the covid times they're going to be really pissed off and disappointed with where the market's going because of either a overproduction or b um not overproduction by having too many people doing it, but by big people overproducing and then animals being stagnant to where we are forced to drop prices to sell animals. Um, I want Superdorfs to be affordable. I want people to still be able to buy a retic if that's what you want in a smaller package. My caveat is that um, I never think that a retic should be tremendously affordable regardless if it's tiny because a retake is still a retake so yeah. and that's where we're just getting into with the the super dwarf market i'm starting to see us not learn from the morph craze uh in the 2010s from the mainlands and we're doing it all over again and it could hurt us um i just what i would like to see 
from the future is more niche breeders with smaller collections and better husbandry and larger enclosures and naturalistic setups. And I would love to see buyers reflect caring about buying from those people um, and not just trying to get the best bang for your buck, because at some point you're going to be able to buy a 50% Superdor for 200 bucks. Um, and, um, and that, that, that part is happening soon. Um, so yeah, that's where I kind of see the market going. I do see a little bit of a crash with hopefully when the economy gets better, a little rise, we're going to see newer morphs taken into Superdors that are going to be expensive and then level out. But I would like to see retics price at a responsible price that we're not encouraging the parent to say, oh, well, it's a Superdorf retic. Let me get one for my son. But, you know, you still have a food responsive animal um, that you are working with. And so... Um, I want to see them affordable for everybody. Like people ask me, like with the Ocelot project and me wanting to work it into Superdorf, like I, you know, I don't, I don't want a Superdorf Ocelot to be $30,000 because I want everyone to have an Ocelot in a manageable size retake. Like that would be amazing. But at the same time, I don't want retakes, even if they're pure Superdorfs or as tiny as can be to be cheap. Because again, that cheap means Easier access, easier access means more irresponsible people keeping them. And that's so, not a good thing. So question for you then, Lucas, in, in your mind, what would be kind of a, a, an acceptable price point for really any reticulated python? What do you think the bare minimum should be just to have that kind of barrier to entry? That's I mean, I would question. love to see if mainland retic started at 750 to $1,000. Like I, I would agree. love if a mainland retic was that price because of how big they get. Yeah, but I would love to dollars just so you know. Like I'm I'm selling a clutch and I'm consigning. Right. Just just so that there's the 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 consideration. Oh, that's kind of a lot of money. Let me reconsider if I really want to get this retic. And then you're gonna maybe do more research. Um and that kind of stuff. But it's scary when you start to see retakes fall below the 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 three hundred dollar mark. Yeah, one thing we've always preached here is no impulse buying of of retics, and I think that price point is a great way to stop some of that impulse buying. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um, you guys have done very well with that. Glenn? Trying to show a a responsible way to do it, because like Nathan, with your back, you mm -hmm. can't be messing around with a fifteen foot retic that's food aggressive. No, so. I mean, my, my 25 pound, maybe 28 pound, um, 75% Kalatoa, 12 and a half Jampea, when she has her bad days, she's, she's not super easy to work with, but since she's that, that weight and that size, I can still do it without hurting myself. Now, if that animal's 40 pounds and fighting against me, you know, I'd like to say I've done enough, uh, work in my health to be able to manage that now. But, you know, if my back gives out on me again, I don't want to have an animal that I can't work with. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think the future is bright. I think that it'll stay bright if we as breeders continue to be responsible. And that's a big ask. But I think we all need to look at ourselves in the mirror and really make the best decisions for where our animals end up. <coughs> Excuse me. You okay there? You were just getting so nope. emotional about it. It's okay. Real men cry, Lucas. Yeah. Do you guys ever get so emotional that you cough? 
Huh? All right, next slide. What do we got? <laughs> I'm. <laughs> so we, we got we got beautiful Glenn over here. That's my puppy. I'm very okay. That was before he was broken. That's oh, all I have for you. Sorry, your puppy's broken. He broke so, his leg at like right it. after that well, photo was taken. How did he break his leg? Uh, he was at doggy daycare and then started jumping up and down repeatedly and then um, broke his growth plate. Tibial okay. crest avulsion, if anyone cares. Okay. Oh, well, geez. everyone, uh, follow Glenn, whether Don't. it's on Facebook or over on Instagram. Just a wealth of knowledge, as you guys have all heard. Uh, we will be compiling these into one long episode, so you have one place you can go sit down and listen to all this information. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Glenn, anything else for us today? Uh, thank you again for having me on. It was highly, very enjoyable. Yeah, no, this is, like I've said in previous episodes, yeah, this is this was... one of my favorite segments we've ever done, so I appreciate all the work you've put in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we'll definitely have my... you on in future episodes. Um, like you mentioned before, the Tiger locality talk we'll have you on before but yeah i agree with nathan that this has been by far the most enjoyable i've learned a tremendous amount over the last three episodes yeah and this stuff is more my wheelhouse than the experience so i always want to make that very clear that i'm not someone with decades and upon decades of working with animals that's not what um i know i'm more i can offer something else but uh, for experience experience is research and that's fine yeah so that's why i always want to fall back on you guys who have the years of experience so it's just it's different not bad not worse just different thank you everyone (laughs) for joining in on part three of my favorite segment so far um be sure that if uh, you want any extra trl that you're going over to our discord we have i believe 63 or 64 members and counting um and just a great group of people over there that uh, are constantly engaging in the discord uh, i believe even we have one of the npr guys so i mean we have some great knowledge in there so it's another little resource of trl that you guys can join so uh, join there make sure you're subscribing to the youtube that way you can be entered into our 1000 subscriber giveaway and then every hundred after that we're going to be giving away some us arc memberships so stay tuned uh, lucas and i thank you for almost a year and we'll see you next week